Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I am here today with Jennifer Wilson, a Northeast High School social studies teacher who is a fellow at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. She teaches her students about the Holocaust, genocide, and human rights violations, and has written a resource guide for educators titled Teaching the Holocaust. Um, Jennifer, tell me how you got interested in this subject. Well, there's no real specific incident because I thought about this a lot. It's really sort of a series of events. So I guess somewhere in my teens, maybe in high school, I began to fully understand what I sort of generically call the plight of the oppressed, um, really looking at human rights violations, looking at our history, and fully understanding, especially when studying topics like the African slave trade and the Civil War, understanding and seeing the injustice that is very inherent in racism. And I was quite frankly often mad at this injustice, how ignorance can feel hatred and violence. And so during my senior year, somewhere during that year, I, I had an epiphany to be a social studies teacher. I was really enjoying history as a subject, and I really wanted to continue to learn about human rights topics. So I went to Edinburgh University, um, and I majored in secondary education, in social studies, and in the course of being in Edinburgh University, looking at my bachelor's or studying for my bachelor's degree, I joined the History Club, and we went to Washington, D.C., to the newly opened, it was within the hmm. first year, if I remember correctly, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Um, we went for like one overnight stay. We couldn't get a permanent exhibit tour. It had just opened, but there's plenty to look at without actually going through that exhibit. And I, I really remember walking around and viewing what we could view and thinking, first of all, what an amazing place, but it was very sad um, and, and sort of beautiful in the architecture and the symbolism and the way that they did it. And really hoping I would go back, sort of not realizing then, you know, I've been back probably at least 20 times for a variety, which has been wonderful. So I graduated with that Bachelor of Science in Education and Certification in Social Studies. And fairly soon after that, I got my job at Northeast High School. Um, and soon after that, started my master's degree uh, in middle and secondary instruction in social studies. And it is there that I came into contact with sort of another issue, and that's women's rights and feminism. And several of my elective courses for that master's degree was in women's, were, I'm sorry, in women's studies. And with that, it sort of added another layer to looking at human rights situations. Uh, meanwhile, I started teaching at Northeast High School and became a chaperone on a regular trip that we now do every other year. But back then we did every year for our advanced placement uh, AP government students there. Now they take my advanced placement European history students as well. And so I started to do that every year and then every other year. And every time I went, I got new teaching materials about the Holocaust and also the amazing experiences that you get when you go. Um, and I just grew more interested and, and angry, I guess, at how individuals could be persuaded that an entire group could be viewed as the enemy. 
And so in going to that museum, I started to see a convergence of these different topics, uh, racism, misogyny, anti-Semitism, into this topic of genocide. Genocide, though, takes these isms to sort of a terrifying new level where you're really looking at a man-made phenomena of mass murder. And so I proposed and was able to start teaching about a decade ago my ethnic conflict course for Northeast High School, and it allows me to look at, at various things, specifically genocide cases, but also cases of ethnic conflict among groups. Um, I ended up going to Europe in 2012 with the World Affairs Council of Pittsburgh, which sort of allowed me, even though that was about the European Union, there were some topics we studied about ethnic conflict there. Mm. But I guess the final culmination of all these things, sort of in, in really setting me on the mission I've been on ever since 2013, was becoming a museum teacher fellow with United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in 2013. With that, I connected with the Jewish Community Council of Erie um, to work on that fellowship project and have really maintained a wonderful relationship with them ever since. They just recently very generously funded a trip for me to go to Europe for the first time to actually see Holocaust-related sites. Mm -hmm. I got to go to Auschwitz and to Krakow and Terezin in the Czech Republic. Um, and also on top of that, for the last two and a half years, I have been pursuing a second master's degree uh, this one in Holocaust and Genocide Studies from Gratz College, which is just outside of Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, so how do you prepare to teach the class to bring this down to high school students? Oh, right. Well, first of all, when I first started like 10 years ago, there's no real textbook for no. all of what I wanted to do. Um, there was one great book I stumbled upon in Barnes & Noble, which was Samantha Power's Problem from Hell, which she actually mm -hmm. does review multiple genocides and American foreign policy in the process of that. I also had an incredibly bright senior aide that year. Uh, it was like the spring semester before the fall that I was going to start this course, and she and I just researched articles and um, found some resources, and then my district generously allowed me to purchase some things too. So I started collecting resources. Um, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's website is a wonderful resource, as is something called the Choices Program from Brown University. So due to the nature of the topic, I knew I had to balance the harshness of it, because mm -hmm. genocide is hard to talk about every single class, um, with a sense of empowerment in terms of discussing with the students how we can truly be agents of change. Um, I added a type of sort of social activist component to the course. So over the years, we've done fundraisers for organizations like the International Rescue Committee, which helps uh, people who are displaced by ethnic conflict and genocide. And that's been around since World War II. Al Albert Einstein hmm. was very instrumental in creating that organization. We've created educational materials. We've done assemblies. Um, so I try to put a positive spin on this course in terms of how they can prevent, really, genocide. I try also to make time to talk about experiences that they may have in their everyday lives with like peer aggression, intolerance, um, how we treat people that society labels as different. The Anti-Defamation League has this awesome resource, resource excuse me, called the Pyramid of Hate. Um, and it ends, the top of the pyramid is genocide, but the bottom is basically about biased attitudes. And that's something you can have a conversation about just about every day and it's definitely worth talking about. Mm -hmm. And that gets to kind of my next question, why you think this work is important? 
I think some of the most important lessons to be learned from the study of the Holocaust and genocide as a whole is the way in which human beings tend to separate, classify, label, judge, and then act upon those and discriminate against each other. I think um, the root causes of genocide tend to boil down to what we do then with this labeling, classifying, judgment, how fear and ignorance which also manifests in the belief of hate-filled ideologies, which are often based upon false doctrines, leads to the dissemination of powerful messages by powerful figures or groups. The next step is especially critical. Like, what do we do with these messages? Uh, do they join in with discriminatory and violent action, or can we shut it down? And what can we do to get more people to shut down these dangerous, this dangerous speech and these dangerous actions? So um, what does the class cover? Are there certain materials that are more effective, or like a particular book or film? Well, my, my ethnic conflict course, which is specifically about that, ethnic conflict and genocide, um, we, I, I really have never taught the same way twice. It sort of comes out different every time. Mm. The last couple of years I've started with introducing what I call the forces of division because I think that's something, it goes with that bottom level of the, the pyramid of hate. I begin with stereotyping, bias, prejudice, discrimination, racism. And then we get into the more specific aspects of nationalism and anti-Semitism. And when we get to the anti-Semitism piece, that tends to take us down the, the course, I guess, to the first topic, which is the Holocaust. Um, and after we do the Holocaust, I look at, it depends on time at this right. point, Armenia, the, the genocide against the Armenians during World War I and the Ottoman Empire, um, Cambodia in the 70s, Bosnia and Rwanda in the 90s. Um, I also like to talk about cases of conflict in the United States involving Native Americans and American settlers and the African slave trade as well. Regardless of whether or not we call everything genocide, they're definitely cases of ethnic conflict. And in my other courses, like I teach American history and AP European history, um, I do try and definitely talk about, especially in the World War II unit, the Holocaust, and in units like in AP Euro, we'll talk about Bosnia, or we'll touch upon Bosnia and, and Rwanda as well. I do have some, some of my favorite resources. Mm. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum is an amazing place, but their web presence, their website is amazing as well. Um, the institution specializes in historical scholarship. They have fellows that are in residence there. They have historians that are actually employed there. Um, they're constantly researching the newest evidence and information. They also have a survivor's bureau where survivors can research about their families. They can connect with each other. Um, they have a speaker's bureau where you can try and bring a survivor to speak at an event. Um, the Holocaust Museum also has, I think, the only place in the United States where you can access the records of the International Tracing Service. Um, so if you want to go, and these are records, immigration records, records that became available after the Cold War especially. So it's just an amazing place. Um, and, and their website has a lot of great resources. I also love something called Facing History in Ourselves, which is a wonderful website, whereas the Holocaust Museum really focuses on the history, which is awesome. The Facing History in Ourself website talks about the ethical dilemmas and considerations, not that they don't have history, but they have that aspect of it too. So the two of them together are wonderful. Um, the Choices program from Brown University is a wonderful educational series about important topics. So their booklets on genocide are awesome, and I use those for my ethnic conflict. 
the Echoes and Reflection program comes to like Erie County. Um, they are what the state uses to conform to Act 70, which came out under Tom Corbett's administration, which strongly encourages genocide, Holocaust, I'm sorry, and genocide education. So the state seems to be using Echoes and Reflections, um, which is a nice program. They have a great website too. And we also, like my English department, has our sophomores teach Ellie Wiesel's night. And then I follow up in my AP Euro for the students who take that with Prima Levy's survival in Auschwitz. And my freshman watch, one of my favorite documentaries, is Gerda Weissman Klein's well, One Survivor Remembers, which is Oscar winning in the mm. 1990s. It's a wonderful documentary accessible on the Holocaust Museum's website. Uh, and finally, <laughs> um, tons, I could keep going, but these are some of my, remember, these are my favorites. Um, the Southern Poverty Law Center is, is a watchdog against hate crime. So anytime you generally hear like an international news story uh, talking about the uptick of hate crime, um, they're often referencing, they'll often interview people from this place, the Southern Poverty Law Center. And they publish a magazine I've used for over 20 years called Teaching Tolerance. It has both an online presence and a, and a hard copy in the mail magazine that still comes. It still remains one of my favorite resources as well. And they really are doing a great job trying to keep track of, of all of those things. And I just always keep in mind, too, the Holocaust Museum on its website has a series of guidelines for teachers um, in terms of how to address the topic of the Holocaust and genocide. And there's like 10 of them, and they deal with the best ways in which you should approach teaching this class. So what effect does it have on your students and your experience? So this is, a, that's a great question, and I wish I could answer it a little bit better. I wish I had a lot of data. Uh, unfortunately, and perhaps this is something I can do in the future, I've really never, never done a measurable sociological study. And there are some things out there where I know some of my fellow fellows um, have done some surveys to teachers about the impact. And, and I don't have anything to offer that way where I've actually created something like with a measurement tool, but I can tell you that I, they're, they're interested. Um, if you don't approach it in a way that's shock and awe, I'm not a fan mm -hmm. of the shock and awe because for some students it's so traumatic, they'll never want to learn about it again. So I sort of ease into the topic, generate as interesting, and sometimes it's really fascinating what they come up with, discussions, and I really try and accept and permit all of those hard discussions um, that come along with studying topics like what we do, racism, stereotyping, bias, prejudice, et cetera. I tell them to ask their questions, to speak their mind, but to do so in a, a respectful tone and manner. They can't interrupt each other. They can't criticize each other. Um, and once we get over talking about some of those, sort of that lower letter level, I'm sorry, bias, prejudice, et cetera, and we get into cases of genocide, there's really, like, the arguments are gone. Most people agree that genocide's awful <laughs> and that it exists. So that gets, it's, it's yeah. just becomes traumatic. So that's when I'll back off a little. We'll do something social activist or, or, um, do some emotional outlet. We paint sometimes. We journal sometimes. Um, and I also encourage students to talk to me privately if they ever need to, if they think that we are talking about something that is really difficult for them or if they, they want to say something and they're unsure of how to say it. 
But I can tell you that it's not uncommon for me several years after I've had a student, they might be in college, you know, they'll email me and tell me, hey, Mrs. Wilson, I just had this discussion and I thought of you. Or like in the middle of the summer, I'll have a student email me a video they liked. Uh, or, hey, I, I read the story and I thought of you. And when Ellie Wiesel passed away several years ago, I had a student who sent me um, a message that said, I can't believe he passed away. I remember reading his book. Thank you for, for asking us to read it. So those are the things that I have to share about impact. And, and generally, I think it's, fair, it's pretty well received. Mm-hmm. And you see those fruits years later. Even, right, right. That's, that's, that's sort of my, yeah, my test, you, I guess. You know it reached them. Right, right. Um, what is the most rewarding thing about offering this instruction and what's most challenging? There's definitely both. Um, It really is a privilege that my district understands that in order really to progress in in society in terms of the way in which we get along and also to constantly promote human rights, we have to study what the Teaching Tolerance magazine from the Southern Poverty Law Center calls hard history. It's not always easy, but when you avoid this, this, these topics and you mm-hmm. avoid the uh, emotional interactions that can come out from it, you're not going to make any progress and ignorance tends to grow. And I basically, I learn something new every single day, both from my students and from my own research. Uh, being able to teach this course allows me to go in depth into what I deemed as those forces of division so that students can be more aware of their own prejudices and misconceptions. And we've had lots of conversations even this year about that, which is, is they've been really great. Um, not easy, but really wonderful moments where students have thought, wow, I, and me too. Like, gosh, mm-hmm. I really do think that way sometimes. Um, equally as important, they will hopefully come to understand when other people are trying to impose beliefs on them using stereotypes and logos and prejudices. Uh, One of the most powerful pieces of research that I've ever been exposed to, and it came through my fellowship from the Holocaust Museum, was Susan Benish's Dangerous Speech Project. And literally her website is called that. Um, She created a five-point framework to determine if speech is hate speech, which is bad enough, or is it dangerous, which means it incites violence. And her framework, her framework, um, just on the surface to start looking at it, is pretty simple. You determine who is the speaker, who is the audience, in what ways are they speaking, uh, what's the context, what's going on around them in society, and then how are they able to disseminate their info. It is really powerful information that I think um, really helps people to understand and my students to understand how they could be impacted by people who want them to believe in certain ideologies. I, it just it strikes me, given what you just said, does it seem more important or urgent uh, to teach this history given the current national context? And when I say that, I, I'm thinking about our president's divisive rhetoric, um, emboldened hate organizations, events that happened like the white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, the recent racially motivated massacre in El Paso, and of course the mass shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, which was a, a year ago. Um, how do you handle, you know, that context and also how maybe it relates to things that happen on social media? Well, I remember last year when the Tree of Life Synagogue, um, you know, when when the hate crime happened, we were just coming back from the Holocaust Museum, or we had the day before, I believe. Oh, my. So I just, through the Jewish Community Council, taken a group of students from Northeast High School to DC, we do the one day trip, the one day trip, excuse me, that they, it's their Holocaust bus tour trip. So they finance it. 
Um, and we were just, I mean, we had come back the day before, and then that happened. So that surely did come into our discussion the, for a while after that. But this is, you know, one, it's, it's one case of this uptick of hate-filled action and speech and violent acts that are going on. And it's very important to make students aware the ways in which leaders and groups can attempt to persuade them to believe that certain groups are the other, which means they're separating them out, and then the enemy. Um, and so by talking about this, they can better deal with situations when they arise in their own lives, either through the media they are exposed to or the attitudes of friends and family that might be coming about. Mm -hmm. They can use the information we've talked about and say, look, this is, this is what's happening here and, and this is what you're doing, I guess. Um, social media brings with it an exposure to all types of information and trends. And wow, it can really leave people, especially teenagers, very vulnerable to believing everything they see on social media. And so I think about this all the time, actually, as I have two teenagers myself. I have a 10th grader and a, and a 12th grader that I gave birth to. Um, <laughs> the best way really to, to counter the negative effects that can emerge from this bombardment of information on social media uh, especially related to this particular topic is education. So using the right sources, countering what they might see on social media with the sources, some, many of which I've mentioned. I mean, the Holocaust Museum's website is a click away, uh, and that's one of my favorites, as I've mentioned before. To determine the actual truth and to recognize bias is so important. Um, in addition, schools can help this process and address, you know, if they have instances that might arise by using some of the resources I've mentioned, but also that Teaching Tolerance magazine has a really awesome anti-bias framework that addresses school climate issues. They actually have an entire manual for how to address when an incident happens in your school. By climate, they mean atmosphere. Yeah, political atmosphere. Or, I'm sorry, yep. not political. I didn't mean to say political, but but atmosphere in the school if it becomes yep. hate-filled and, okay. and steps you can take to diffuse that. So there's an entire wonderful manual online hmm. um, on on their website. And even in our school several years ago, like, oh my gosh, maybe eight when I say several, a while ago from my ethnic conflict class, we even created a group called Inspire. Hmm. And Inspire specifically seeks to promote a positive school climate in a variety of ways. Um, at that time, we created a list of core principles that we sort of wanted to, we ourselves wanted to live by, but then we wanted the school um, to also, and these are like, you know, having positive attitude, treating each other as, as equals, believing in yourself, like there's a whole list of them, having academic integrity. We've crafted an actual code of ethics over the years, and every child has, every student has a magnet in their locker huh. with these code of ethics, and we continuously um, try and promote positive school climate through a variety of ways in my school. So that's another thing that can help. And that's good. That's happening even now. Yeah, I, and I meet, I'm in charge of the Inspire group, yeah. yes, and we are a regular group that meets all the time. That seems fitting for yeah. these days. Absolutely. Well, I really, really appreciate you sitting down and talking with me about your work. And I greatly appreciate um, you ask, you know, asking me to be a part of this and giving me the time to speak um, for something that I think is just so important. Agreed. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. 
from the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.